Gentlemen, thank you all for reading uh, scriptures this morning. You, you may have noticed that uh, we read a lot of scripture this morning. We wanted to do that by design to kind of saturate the service with the word of God. And uh, we began with, with the uh, uh, very terrible day that Christ died and some of the events that were surrounding that. Then we obviously saw, read the uh, wonderful account of how Christ uh, rose from the dead. And then after that, it was uh, Peter's uh, first message after uh, Jesus Christ had appeared to them and, and promised them the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon them, and uh, that was really uh, the, 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 the sign that they were to then turn around and, and go and present the good news of Christ and tell others about it, which is what he did on the day of Pentecost. And as he did that, um, his theme was that Christ died, yes, but also that he rose again. And so as we just took a look at that, uh, what I want to talk about today, if you, I'm going to test some of your memories uh, in just a, just, just a nasty way, okay? You probably don't remember this, but back a little while ago, we had a message regarding verse uh, 34 and 35 in Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2, 34 and 35, it says, uh, uh, for David did not ascend into heaven, but he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. What we saw there was that that passage was really something that came from the Old Testament, but we saw it linked to Christ and his deity, the fact that he is God, uh, and, and that was linked through several people, several authors throughout the New Testament. Well, we're going to do a similar thing today as we look into this specific uh, chapter, but then also link it back to some other things. And as we do that, um, what, what I want us to just to think about for just a moment here is what does it mean to be corrupted? You might have even picked up that word, or as I mentioned that word, remembered in, in uh, the book of Acts here, that the word corrupt is there. You know, if we talk about a judge taking a bribe of any kind before he makes a ruling, then we say that he is corrupt. And it follows that justice also had been corrupted. The money makes the justice wrong, okay? It's not going to be there. Um, when, we, when there is an error in a computer file, not that I've ever experienced this, right? We say that it is corrupted. We, we can't do anything with it. It's, it's gone, right? We know, we don't like to really think about it a lot, but we know that there's a lot of corruption in government, and it changes how people are to govern, and it's corrupted, and it shows, right? So we have corruption around us, and there's other examples we can use, but I want us to just talk for just a few moments on how corruption is used in the New Testament. The root word for corruption is phthora, and it comes in three basic forms. Uh, I will say I don't get into the Greek a lot because even after a message, someone will say, you know, it's all Greek to me. Uh, so, you know, we, we don't do that a lot. But at the same time, I think it's important to look at this word. It conveys the meaning of something or someone that is destroyed, dead, contaminated, or immoral. The first word is simply the word thora, and I wanted you to, to take a look at how this is used in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 and 21. It's talking about the creation after the fall. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. So what is 
the issue with creation right now, it's corrupted. Okay, but it will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So as, as, as uh, this verse tells us, creation itself is going to one day be redeemed, so to speak. Um, it doesn't, uh, I did a little yard work yesterday, it doesn't take long to figure out that creation is corrupted, right? There's weeds, sticks fall, you know, all kinds of things like that. So we can understand what that means. Then there are two words in the New Testament that have uh, the prefix dia in front of it. Uh, and that kind of adds a little bit of oomph to this word. And, and dia simply means through or across. Uh, we use this prefix. We say diameter, right, which is going across a circle. Um, or, or across, right, we use that. I'm, I'm sorry, or dialogue. We use that, dialogue, going across, to and from, conversation. Um, so the dia gives the emphasis to the corruption. So I want to see just a couple of ways this is used in the New Testament. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. Okay, that's that height idea of dying, right? Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. So outwardly, if we are a follower of Jesus Christ, we're not going to escape death. We will die. We, we are in the process of being corrupted. Some of us of a certain age know that we're maybe a little more corrupted than others in the room, but it's happening, right? And so it's, it's happening. And then the next verse here, useless wranglings of men, this is talking about false teachers, corrupt of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from which withdraw yourself. We've been talking about false teachers quite a bit in our studies. And so I just wanted to use this as an example. So the body is in the process of being completely corrupted and the whole of a false teacher's mind is corrupted. All right. So you get how this word is used. One form is only found in the two texts that we'll be looking at this morning. The, te the text will make the meaning more clear. And so as we do that, what I want to then talk about is the resurrection of Christ. Bottom line is, our condition without Jesus is that we have been and are corrupted. That's right. We are dead according to our sins. And so there's something that needs to take place. So in addition... To what we have uh, have had read to us, I would like us to look at two passages in the book of Acts. And the first one is Acts chapter 2. Uh, Acts chapter 2. Let me read for you um, not the entire passage that, that Brother Tim read to us, but a, but a portion of that um, where it, it starts in verse 22. And it says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death. Let's pause here just for a moment and make it clear that God planned this to take place. Okay? But as we, as we also consider verse 22... There were all kinds of signs that these people saw, thousands of people saw, thousands of people saw, to attest to the fact that he is the Son of God. And so we go on. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. 
For he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore the heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope, because you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. So we see several uh, psalms that are being, um, uh, I'm sorry, not several, but a couple of psalms that are being quoted here. Then he goes on to explain, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us today. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of the body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus got us raised up, of which we are all witnesses. So we'll stop there and, and just consider a couple of things. First of all, Peter, as we said, he quotes a psalm. He quotes, quotes Psalm 16 verses 8 through 11. And so um, I have verses 8 through 10 up here for you. And so you can see how he has quoted this. I want us to look at verse 27 in, in uh, Acts 2, which is the direct quote of verse 16. Peter explains that David was foretelling about a, de a descendant who would come after him, who would come after David, meaning the Messiah, okay, the chosen one. Peter remarks in verse 27 that David is dead, um, and, and regarding verse 27, that they know where he's buried. So David wasn't talking about himself, right? So as we, as we look here, uh, and, and I meant to say verses 29 and 30 and so on, David's dead. And he even says, if we want to, we can go, we can see his tomb, we can see where he's buried. So David wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about someone else. We're going to go back just for a moment to 2 Samuel chapter 7. This was something that David was promised. It says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God sent Nathan the prophet to David after he had planned to build a house for the Lord. He was going to build God's temple. And God told uh, David, I don't want you to do that. I'm going to have your son do that, your son Solomon. And he would go on to build the temple. But God also said to David that he would have a seed or an offspring from his own body. And further promised that he would establish David's throne forever, as we see in this verse. He repeats this emphasis in verse 16, back in uh, the, the psalm. And so as we, as we th think about this, I'm sorry, no, he repeats the, anyway, as we think about this, sorry about that, I'm just getting trained of thought. <laughs> so, so what we see here is, is that this seed is ultimately going to be the Messiah. Solomon didn't reign on the throne forever. So David was prophesying, and that's what, that's what Acts 2 is telling us here, that there is someone who is to come. So then going back to Acts 2, Peter continues to explain that David was talking about the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection meant that Jesus would not remain in the grave and see corruption. Again, a fulfillment of Psalm 16. Jesus was not going to remain in the grave. So putting this all together, Jesus Christ, God the Son, would be the one to sit on David's throne forever as the king 
as the risen Lord and Savior. So that is the message that uh, Tim read from this passage that now I um, uh, encouraged you to consider and to go over in your minds. But Peter is saying this to all of these Jews who had just seen all of these events. And their response is, what do we do? And of course, he tells them to believe, right? To trust in what they have seen and to believe that Jesus is the Christ. We'll get to that in just a minute. So now what I want to do is I want us to go to Acts chapter 13. It's just going to be a couple of pages beyond where you're at right now. Acts chapter 13. And we're going to look at the sermon of Paul. So we've heard Peter, Peter, one of the original disciples that Jesus called, who then after, again, the day of Pentecost, he gives this message. We're going to hear a similar message from Paul. We know that Paul was called uh, while he was on his way to Damascus to basically jail Christians. This way, they called it, was this new thing, and it was driving the Jewish leaders crazy. Obviously, we know that Jesus had already done that with his ministry, but now they're trying to stamp this out. They're trying to stop this way, as they called it. And so uh, here is is Paul, uh, jealous for what he thinks is the work of God, right? The way the Jews had already done things, the old covenant. And yet Jesus brings this new covenant, this new promise, and he doesn't understand it. He wants nothing to do with it. He wants to destroy it. But instead, Jesus comes to him and asks him, why are you persecuting me? And Paul converts. Paul turns. Paul responds in faith to Christ. He is made new. And now all of a sudden, this one who was, as the scriptures say, breathing out these threatenings is now sitting in church with other believers. I mean, talk about, you know, getting a little nervous, right? You know what I mean? But here... Here, um, we're going to see uh, some, some things that are taking place. Basically, they have gone from Antioch, and they were sent out as missionaries, he and Barnabas. And so they're going to these different cities. And he will eventually come to um, this, this second Antioch. And so uh, I'll explain that in just a moment. But let's take a look at verses 15 through 21. And Acts chapter 13, verses 15 through 21. I was so busy talking to you, I didn't turn there myself. All right. And we'll start in verse 14. But when they parted from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets and the rulers of the synagogue sent them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. So in other words, they just go into what we would call the Jewish church. And the, the, the law was read. And then they said, hey, if, if, if you, you know, newer guys, if you have anything to, to add to that, please do. And then Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of this, of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. 
Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. And after that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, in other words, where God had removed Saul, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. And John had first preached before him coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finished his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whom, whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though, by, and though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree, that's from the cross, and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for, for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, the promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this to us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And then he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also said in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Do you remember that from Psalm 16? Let me go on just a little further. For David, after he had served his own generation for the will of God, fell asleep. He died. He was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come to you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. Folks, that last part there is a warning, okay? A warning that we ought to believe what we had just heard. Now, again, I mentioned to you that they went from Antioch, uh, and you can see, don't worry about the arrows, this is just a good map. Uh, Antioch on the, on the far right of your screen there, and then we see that they eventually ended up in this Antioch, Antioch, Pisidia. And as they, as they ended up there, they were explaining to the Jews and foretelling of, uh, to the Jews of the foretelling of Christ and the gospel of Christ. So we read to you these verses. We looked at all these different things. And so in verses 15 through 21, uh, we see that he re first references the patriarchs, the, 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 the first ones that God brought, uh, you know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then he talks about the Exodus and the 40-year wilderness wandering, uh, occupying the promised land, the time of the judges and the beginning of the reign of the kings. He then explained 
starting in verse 22, how God fulfilled his promise to David by sending Jesus. Just like we heard in Peter's message, Paul explained that God promised David a seed or an offspring. John the baptizer gave testimony of Jesus. Paul then appeals to them as children of Abraham and his covenant, not as children of Moses and the law. Now let me explain that for just a minute. The children of Israel were under the law. They had to obey it. They were to obey it in faith, but they had to obey it. And so as they were obeying the law, right, they were to place their faith in what God had given to them. But we knew, as we've already seen, that there was this Messiah that was foretold. Jesus fulfilled the law. He didn't come to abolish the law to get rid of it. He came to fulfill it. And just as we heard, if you were here at breakfast, Jesus Christ was the lamb, the lamb that represented all of the sacrifices that the children of Israel made. And so as we're looking at what Paul is telling them, he's saying, okay, here's your history, but all of this moves forward to the present. And then he explains again, just like Peter did, we receive some promises from David himself. I mean, David was the king, right? That was, that was the glory days. That was when the kingdom was established and built up. And then Solomon, he, he benefited from all of that and it was made even greater. But David was the one, as we read, that was the man after God's own heart. Now, we know he had issues. Do you? Do I? Yes. He wasn't sinless. He still needed a savior. But he was looking ahead. He was looking ahead, ahead to one who would not remain in the grave. He would not be corrupted. See where that word comes into play now? We are corrupted. Jesus Christ, not. We'll get there in just a minute. So he goes on to explain that those in Jerusalem who were most educated and informed, we're talking near present day now, were the ones who rejected the prophecies of Christ and actually worked to fulfill them by arranging for his execution. They killed Jesus just like he said they were seeking to do, right? Jesus told them from the beginning, you want to kill me? Ah, well, what are you talking about? Well, they did, and they did want to. I love the phrase in verse 29 that we read. It says, now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. <laughs> so think about this for a minute. The Jewish leaders sought to destroy Jesus. God actually used this to fulfill the scriptures. So, so listen to this. They had a plan to try to stop God's plan, which was interfering with their plans. Instead, God used their plan to fulfill his plan, which also destroyed their plans. <laughs> now, I know for some of us, it's still a little bit early in the morning, okay? So let me just say this. The religious and political leaders saw God, Jesus, as a threat. They were afraid they would lose their position and power and respect before the people. So they hatched a plan to falsely accuse Christ, put him on trial, and execute him. Their plan was to eliminate Jesus. Instead, God used the pride, jealousy, and hatred of these men 
to fulfill all the things about Jesus' death foretold hundreds of years before they came to pass. Folks, we talk about the birth of Jesus at Christmas, right? And now we're talking about the death of Jesus. What do you have least control over in your life? Right? And yet what we see is God was never out of control. Everything that they did just worked perfectly into his plan, fulfilling all prophecies made hundreds of years before, including his resurrection. So Paul, like Peter, refers back to David's words. I have... I want you to understand, we should have no doubt, Jesus did die. There are some that say that he somehow just fainted and that they put him in a tomb after all that he went through for three days and then he walked out of it, you know, pushing a very large rock out of the way after, you know, being dehydrated for three days in a tomb. Anyway, however, Jesus would not be abandoned and left in the grave. God fulfilled this prophecy by raising Jesus from the dead. Jesus did not stay in the grave. Therefore, he did not see corruption. Paul then gave them the glorious gospel that those who place their faith in what Jesus did are forgiven and they are justified. Paul specifically notes the critical truth that Christ's death did what the law could not do. The law was never intended, nor did it have any power to make us right before God. Only the completed work of Christ through his death and resurrection from the grave. Now let's pause on that for just a minute. In this room, we may have some people who are saying to themselves, man, you know, if I just do this, this, and this, then I'm going to be, I'm going to be straight with God. We're going to be okay. Right? My relationship's going to be right. What this is telling us is, no, it is only through the work of Christ. That is how we are saved, rescued, justified, made right before him. We can't make ourselves right. Let's go back to that word corrupted. How can we uncorrupt ourselves? It's not going to happen. No matter what we do, we're still going to have sin. So we we can work as hard as we want. We can do all these different things. We can make all kinds of rules. We can perform all different things. And it still comes back to, have we placed our confidence, have we placed our trust in what Jesus did, dying and rising again? So what is the significance of the resurrection? Please understand, I am not going to attempt to answer that question in the next few minutes fully, but I want us, with some of the things that we've been looking at, to do something with that. So first, I want us to uh, look at First uh, Peter, I'm sorry, Second Peter uh, chapter 1, 2 Peter 1. Let's start with verses 1 and 2. Um, we got a couple of um, uh, slides here just because it's a bigger passage. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given us 
exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. There's a lot here, folks, and I just want to note some things. Peter begins his second letter with a definite emphasis on Christ. Peter refers to him as God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we don't need to be confused here. He is declaring that he is God. He continues that des- by desiring that grace and peace be multiplied to them in the, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This, again, is a clear reference to Jesus being God, that he is Jesus our Lord. What follows in verses 3 and 4 are connected back to Christ. Peter may have been purposefully vague in using the pronouns to communicate that Jesus is God. In other words, this is all really fulfilled by God because he's referencing Christ. Uh, therefore, he, he says this. He goes on to say that it is true. it is through the power of Christ as God that we have all we need in relation to eternal life and living a godly life in the present. So it's a both and. As eternal life in Christ... And it's also a present godly living. He adds that the source of this eternal life and eternity-focused living is based upon knowing Jesus. Knowing him. Not knowing about him, but having a relationship with him. Peter continues to build on this by saying that this knowledge is a result of Christ calling us. And this calling is based upon both Christ's glory, his deity, and his virtue, or his moral purity. So Christ is the one who calls us. Now, the by which that you see there is is a connector, and that's a little harder to be uh, dogmatic about, so to speak. It could mean everything that has already been said, or it could be talking specifically about God's amazing and priceless promises. Okay, Either way, Having the promise of eternal life and all the other promises that go with life in Christ provide two vital results. All right? In other words, having the promise of Christ, two vital results. First of all, it says that we are partakers in the divine nature. Yeah. Wow. That's a phrase, isn't it? Now, this does not mean that we will be somehow little gods, little deities. The next phrase actually explains what this means. It says that we have escaped the corruption of our selfish desires. Remember that word corruption? What what word is accompanying this? What word is accompanying it this time? Having escaped. So what does corruption mean here? It, It might mean both the physical and spiritual death that sin results in, but it definitely is talking about spiritual death spiritually corrupted. So simply put, if we have followed Christ as our Savior, we have escaped corruption or spiritual death. This is based, again, on Christ's work, Christ's character, and Christ's calling. That's what this passage tells us. So connecting this back to Peter's message in Acts and Paul's sermons as well, as what David foretold, all of this is linked back to the resurrection of Christ. Our hope, all that we have in Jesus, is linked back to him rising from the dead. Of course, the debt that had to be paid 
required the cross. But our hope is not solely based on the death of Christ. It is based upon the full ministry of Christ on our behalf and all comes together in Christ's victory over death through the resurrection. So partaking in the divine nature is living with no sin and living forever. That's ultimately what we are going to have in the resurrection. Now, I want us to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We have just a few minutes here, folks, to look at one other passage. I know we've looked at a lot of scripture today, but I want you to just take this ride with me one more time. 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to read for you verses 35 through the end of the chapter. Now we, again, have looked at that major passage talking about the suffering of Christ and his death and burial. Then we looked at the passage that talked about how he rose from the dead. Many witnesses seeing that. Then we saw Peter referencing back to that and talking about David and his prophecy. And then we saw Paul doing the same thing. So now here's Paul again talking to a Gentile audience. And so he tells them this. He says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. So he's referring back to the example of farming. We can all understand this. You put a seed in the ground, right? So he explains this. Again, going back to verse 37. What you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh. For there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of fish, another flesh of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is the other. We're talking again, heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. There is one glory of the sun and one glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, and the stars differ from one another in their glory. Verse 42, so also in the resurrection of the dead, the body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there's a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, this is speaking of Christ, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And afterward, the spiritual. So we have the natural seed, death. The spiritual comes after that, right? As with man of dust, so also are those made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Let that sink in. Without Christ, we cannot inherit. We will not have that second aspect Incorruption. It's not going to happen. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, and we shall and we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. 
For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption and mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I know that's a lot, but I want us to see here is this. The victory that Christ gave us over death is his resurrection. What has been corrupted will one day have no corruption at all. You might remember from Colossians, I know for some of you, your guests, that's fine, but we've studied this, that Paul called Christ the firstborn from the dead. This refers to Christ being the first to rise, never to die again. So the promise is then to us. Connecting this back to the theme today, all who die in Christ will rise again. When we rise, we will put on incorruption. There will be no element of death or dying in us anymore. Folks, can you even imagine that right now? Do you remember what 2 Corinthians 4 said? The outward man is perishing. At the resurrection, that is reversed. The mortal is exchanged for immortality. No death. The resurrection of Christ is both the cause and the proof that all in Christ will someday be resurrected to eternal life. So eternal life means that we will no longer experience the corruption of our past life and it also means that our resurrected life will never experience corruption. Did you get that? We're saved from corruption never to be corrupted again. We don't just start over again and start some dying process. No. It's not going to be a part of us anymore. So negatively, there's going to be no more sin, no more decay, never to diminish in any way, shape, or form. Positively, life goes on forever, a fully accessible relationship with God and a completely fulfilling and satisfying eternal life. Folks, that's really what life is is all about to all of us, isn't it? We want to be fulfilled. We want to be satisfied. We're always reaching. We're always grasping. We're always doing. And so what I'm telling you today is not that you can't be happy and not that you can't have a good time with family and do all those things, but in the end, if we don't achieve corruption in corruption through Christ, if we remain corrupted, then we just fulfill what that destiny is. Death. Forever. Both physical and spiritual. It's just the way it is. It's a result of the fall, and it's a result of our own sin. But Christ came. And he made this great exchange of a sinless life. For sinful lives. He died for us. He suffered and paid for sin. And then he tells us 
in his word here, right, that he is the one who actually calls us to himself. And when that exchange takes place, when we trust what he did on the cross and his resurrection, there is an exchange of life for life, a dead life for living forever. No hope for an absolute secure hope in Jesus. And how do we know that? How do we know that it's secure in him? Because he rose again. That's the promise. Jesus saw no corruption, right? He rose again. We one day will, but it doesn't have to be the end of us. Because of what Jesus did, if we place our confidence in him, we can live an incorruptible forever. How much does it take to corrupt something? Not much, right? Drop something on the floor, I ain't eating that. Right? Why? Because it, it got corrupted. <laughs> okay? Not judging your kitchen floors, I'm just saying. <laughs> Folks, it really, the scriptures tell us it really only takes one sin. Right. Scriptures also tell us we're born into it. So we're really corrupted from the beginning. We need Jesus. So what I want us to understand about this life that we have in Christ, it goes beyond merely just existing forever in a perfect place. That's really not the end that we're talking about. It is God restoring everything we were before man fell into sin, especially our relationship with God himself. That's what it's about. It's about being with the one who created us and then being with the one who died for us and rose again on our behalf so that we could have life. That's what it's about. So what about you? Have you placed your faith in Christ, the one who died in the place of sinners? The one who rose again from the grave, who promises that all who trust in him will do the same? There's some warnings here, folks, right? Without Christ, we will remain in our corrupted state. Today, we celebrate a risen Savior because of the great God that he is and because of the great hope that he has given to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we celebrate the incorruption of Christ, Somehow, I, I don't understand it, but the one who knew no sin took on all of our sin, but didn't commit any sin. And Lord, we know, based on what you've told us, we, we know even really from our own logical minds that we can't save ourselves and we can't have someone who's just like us rescue us either. That it took the sinless Christ to come into this world as we know that he did through, the birth, uh, through his birth with Mary, never diminishing his deity, but somehow the God-man lived on this earth a perfect life to then give it for us. Holy, completely, he died for us. But Lord, we thank you and we celebrate today that great day that he rose again. 
we thank you that he had victory over death. And it was all for us. That he had victory over the grave. And it's through him that we have that promise too. That we have nothing to fear when we take our last breath. And that someday we will all be resurrected bodily who have trusted in you. And we will forever be with the one who created us. And the one who rescued us. Lord, again, we thank you for the celebration that we can have today. All honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.